and there was a phenomena that was occurring where we could detect breast cancer with hair, but we didn't know why. I came up with an idea with my colleague that, as we, you know, we'd looked at different things in the hair, protein structures and all sorts of things that we thought could be it. But in the end, it was me using olive oil in my hair that led to the discovery that perhaps the markers we were seeing in hair were actually from lipids, but you know, olive oil is a lipid, so it's a fat, a type of fat that was existing in the hair. So when we thought about breast cancer, if it exists in the breast and it's getting to the hair, then there must be a way for it to travel to the hair, and that naturally came to blood. Welcome to Multiple Hearts, a show about STEM professionals who have gone off script and carved their own path beyond the tracks that were set for them. Science, technology, engineering, mathematics, medicine, how they found their why and what it takes to make it happen. I'm Angelic, and on the show today, I'm talking to Dr. Damika Mystery. Damika is one of these early achievers who have accomplished so much from the very beginning of their career. Starting in microbiology, she made an interesting discovery that she could see could change the way we detect breast cancer and save hundreds of thousands of lives by detecting it early with a simple blood test. Currently, breast cancer is the most common cancer globally, with one in eight women in the US developing it in their lifetimes. And yet, as Damika puts it so well, we have put men on the moon, but we don't have a simple way to detect breast cancer. Armed with this conviction that we should do more about this and her scientific discovery, she made this her core focus and founded B. Carl Diagnostics 13 years ago. If you wonder how does a 22-year-old start as a founder of a deep tech company, listen up. It is an incredible, tough, long and risky journey that only resilience can see through. Damika takes us through these incredible times at Bicol Diagnostics, which are now history. You'll hear about how she made the initial discovery, got the intellectual property, found her co-founders, the go-no-go points that make or break your project, and the skills one needs, and the many, many, many stakeholders involved in bringing a deep tech to market. But before we deep dive into founding Bical Diagnostic, let's fast forward with Dr. Damika Mystery of today. Damika, you've had the most prolific 10 years in your career. And it's quite amazing to see the array of things that you've been involved in, from graduating with your PhD in 2014, to being the Director of Diagnostic Industry Engagement at MTP Connect, which is the Medical Technologies and Pharmaceuticals Industry Growth Centre in Australia. Can you explain what does MTP Connect is trying to achieve and what is your role in this? So I'm with MTP Connect, who are an industry growth centre, but we work as a not-for-profit independent organisation that exists to support the biotech, medtech and pharmaceutical sector. And they do that through programs and funding and connecting people across the country. So the nodes of MTP Connect reach wide across Australia. My current role is Director of Diagnostics Industry Engagement. And my current project is working on developing an action plan, a national action plan for the federal government, which looks at our ability in Australia to develop a diagnostic technology, our capabilities. So looking at the challenges and what we should do about it? So we're looking at 
understanding what can we do better, what are the strengths, weaknesses and opportunities for Australia when it comes to diagnostics development, sovereign manufacturing and supply chain resilience. So we've got some really, really great feedback from the ecosystem and industry and and stakeholders across the country to then formulate some really solid action plan points for the government to look at what can we do to address some of these these issues and challenges. Very important work there. And we certainly will touch on some of these challenges as we go through your own journey in developing a medical technology. But before we deep dive into your funder journeys and the many hurdles of developing um, a deep tech, can you tell me about your relationship with science? What got you to start with microbiology and what led you to undertake a PhD in medicine? So for me, I actually, when I left school, wanted to do nutrition and dietetics. That was the course I had my heart set on, but I actually missed out on that course by 0.01 with what is now deemed the ATAR. And what I ended up doing was looking at the university curriculum and doing a Bachelor of Science and trying to sort of replicate some of the subjects they do for nutrition. And then at the end, I'd incorporated microbiology and I actually fell in love with it as I was doing my degree. And I realized the impact of bacteria, fungi and virus was just far more interesting and exciting. And, you know, these tiny little things that exist that we can't even see have such a big impact in our world. And for me, that was fascinating. I really enjoyed it. I did. And I actually did a year of honors and 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 really learned what research was all about. I studied a fungus while I was there and, and wrote my first thesis. And it was all very much understanding, you know, what does research involve? How do you communicate your research and the importance of research? So that was a really pivotal time for me and changed things. After I graduated, I then went on to look for a job. And I I actually almost didn't stay in science. I loved it, but I wasn't really sure where I wanted to go. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go and, you know, travel the world, take a year off, do something fun and take some time out. And I ended up getting a job at a small biotech, which would in today's standards be deemed a startup, I guess. But back then that wasn't really a buzzword. And that was looking at the association between breast cancer and hair. And while I was there, I happened to make a discovery with a colleague around some of the biological mechanisms behind why that may be occurring because it wasn't established. And when we founded that science, we put in a patent. And once we put in the patent, it was my boss at the time who became my mentor who pushed me to say, well, I think you should do a PhD in this. You know, it's something really exciting. It has good potential. My first answer was actually no thanks. I didn't want to do one. But then I took a step back and thought about it and mapped it out. And I was like, there's nothing more motivating than this piece of science. So why not? I didn't realize that PhD could be a bridge to my career in startup. So that was something I learned in hindsight. And so therefore being pushed by someone who thought I could A, do it, B, should do it, and C, give it a red hot go, I ended up doing a PhD at Macquarie University for that too. And so why didn't you want to do a PhD initially? So I came out of university with this traditional scientific training and I I love science, don't get me wrong, but I couldn't see myself fitting into academia. It just wasn't something that, you know, felt very me, you know, as much as I love research, I'm very driven by impact, let's say. And I couldn't see impact when I was in that kind of research environment where it's very niche and you're working on a very specific thing and I couldn't zoom out and see that bigger picture. 
But when I made that discovery at the startup, that straight away put me into that mindset of, oh, wow, I can see where this could potentially have an impact in the world or impact people's lives. And, and that really shifted my view on, okay, this is a reason to do a PhD because I'm really interested in it. People say you should be very committed to the cause and interested in the subject that you're going to embark on when you take a PhD on. And so for me, that just made more sense when I had a couple of the other ducks lined up. Mm. And so just a little bit of when you were younger of that. So you said you wanted to do nutrition, but let's go back even to your teens. What Were you even contemplating science or not at all at that point? How were you going with that question of what do you want to do when you grow up? Absolutely. I, like probably a lot of teenagers, not these days actually, I see teenagers and they seem to know exactly what they want. But when I was a teenager, I didn't really know what I wanted. And what I went by was what I was good at and what I loved and what I was interested in. And so for me, my favorite subject and the only science subject I did at school was biology. I am very curious as a person. I like to understand how things work. And I especially love biology because Mother Nature got it right on so many different Mm. things in the world. And so that was very fascinating. And the other part of science I loved was creativity. So we don't usually associate that with science, but it is because you're constantly asking questions, having a go at sort of solving those problems and then reiterating, which is quite a creative process. And then thirdly, it was the 50% theory and 50% practical nature of biology that I loved. And I had a really good teacher that nurtured me into that and, and, and gave me the drive to, oh, yeah, you know, like this is something that you're really good at, you're interested in it, brought the love of the subject to me. So I ended up coming out of school knowing that I wanted to stick with something in science. But as we all know, science is so broad. And mm. how do you know where science takes you? What kind of career comes out of science? It, it's, it's crazy. I had no idea. Which is why I ended up, oh, you know, I landed on nutrition dietetics because I thought healthcare, you know, food, all the things that I enjoy, and it all comes down to some sort of science that I'd be interested in. But once I got to university, I realized I actually loved something else, which is microbiology. Mm. So going along and picking up the pieces that you like, crystallizing in this PhD. So you see, usually I go through my guest early career journey before I start digging about the entrepreneurship journey. But with you, since you had the entrepreneurial mindset straight on from day one, thanks to that mentor that seed that into your head. So that, that's a, a different journey that we're going to look for. So you founded BCL Diagnosing in 2010. And so that would have been during your PhD. And so you were saying that discovery came from the biotech job that you took, filed a patent. So you started a PhD with already a patent. Hooray. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all right. Yeah. And so, yeah, most students just try to navigate what to do through their PhD, but yours were really clear and you already had like a commercialization idea behind that. Can you articulate for me the, um, the breakthrough of PCL diagnostic for everyone listening? Sure. So the idea came from the first startup that I was working at, which was looking at the association between breast cancer and scalp hair using what we call X-ray diffraction. And there was a phenomenon that was occurring where we could detect breast cancer with hair, but we didn't know why. And whilst I was working there, I came up with an idea with my colleague that, okay, perhaps we'd, you know, we'd looked at different things in the hair, protein structures and all sorts of things that we thought could be it. But in the end, it was me using olive oil in my hair that led to the discovery that perhaps the markers we were seeing in hair 
were actually from lipids, which were all, but you know, olive oil is a lipid, so it's a fat, a type of fat that was existing in the hair. So when we thought about breast cancer, if it exists in the breast and it's getting to the hair, then there must be a way for it to travel to the hair, and that naturally came to blood. And so we thought, well, let's set up a PhD that looks at biomarkers in hair and blood and compares them with controls and cancer patients. And that was sort of the fundamental basis, looking for biomarkers in those two samples. Now, I was just about to start my PhD when that startup company went into administration. So it actually closed shop. And along with that went the intellectual property. And at the time, the other co-founding scientists and I thought this was quite important and relevant. And we were working with another group that had a core interest in developing new technologies for breast cancer, you know, advancements in breast cancer health. So we ended up talking to them. So the four founders included two core investors, two major investors working on solutions in that industry, and then two founding scientists, one of which I was as well. I was 22 at the time, so quite young. And the four of us came together and formed BCAL in 2010. And that's when I began my PhD again and started the journey all over again, but really got on with nailing the hypothesis and validating some of those early claims that we had. Was that really helpful to have those two investors from the beginning? Is that how you started with the capital? Yes, absolutely. So I think there's an important alignment that needs to be had amongst people. So a shared interest in what you're trying to achieve. And I believe that, you know, as scientists, we had this great idea that could potentially solve some problems that we see in breast cancer detection. And then you've got people that understand that problem and want to identify solutions and help build the future of that technology. So having everybody on the same page really did help. And early investment obviously will always, you know, at least get you through those early validation stages. Mm, so you said that the patent went off when the other company, the biotech company you were working for, shut shop. What did you have to do? Did you have to buy the patents again? Yes, we had to find funds. And that was the initial sort of formation of BCAL was to grab that IP out of where it was and purchase it, just that bit that was important, and then run some very early stage validation studies through my PhD to see if it had legs, true legs. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you, because the gold standard continues to be mammography and biopsies, and it definitely was 10 to 15 years, but was the future of breast cancer already thought to be blood test at that point when you started, or was that unheard of at that stage? It's never been unheard of. I think people have tried and not really had much traction in those early stages. We're talking over a decade ago. The reason why is probably there were, you know, some of the same old markers that people were looking at. But if we go forward to where we are now, and the markers we were looking were um, derived from what we call exosomes, which are mini me cells that are thrown into the bloodstream and captured, they're tiny little particles. But then there's also, you know, circulating DNA that's now a big part of tumor DNA that's around. There are other types of genetic technologies that are used to detect disease and infection as well now. So I think it was early for its time, especially around that exosome piece and lipidomic piece, because that was a bit novel and lipids are generally far behind, say, proteomics and a very different space. 
but we're coming to a world now where metabolomics, which is looking at all of those different metabolites, is very much front and center as well. Mm, so a long way has gone. I've heard you said we've put people to the moon, but we haven't have great, simple diagnostic for breast cancer for women under 50. Why do you think that is that we managed to put men to the moon, but we haven't managed to get a great diagnostic technology for that? So it has to be somebody's core focus, right? Female problems are female problems. And I think the more females that are at the table solving these problems, it brings to light what these problems are and how we can solve them. There has to be a core understanding of why something is a problem. And I have been in meetings where I was pitching BKL and talking and it would be a room full of men and they just sometimes didn't grasp the importance of changing the way we diagnose for the disease. And really, it's about early detection to save lives. And if we're using a hand to feel for lumps for women under the age of 40, where we know that it's more aggressive, it's just not good enough. I honestly believe that we should be doing more with all the science that we have and the technology that we have. And that was enough of a reason for me to have a real go at this. Mm. And the reality is that, you know, you say it's a female issue, which, you know, I understand breast cancer is associated with female, although some men can get it. But anyway, we don't go into the details. The technology and the way of looking at the problem is going to be translatable to other areas. If you can detect breast cancer in blood, in hair, then why not prostate cancer at some point? You know what I mean? Or any other male cancer. So I think we should, you know, look at it as human health. And I'm sure you share that idea because you went forward and did it. So thank you for taking that big thing on. <laughs> and so as it does continue to be gold standard as mammography and biopsies, and we know that the journey of taking your technology to the market is a very long and challenging one. There's the idea on the bench, which you had very early on, Often in vitro, I suppose you started in vitro and then proved that it translates to human and then assess accuracy, validated on large sample. But even then, when you find managed to do all this validation, there's still a long way to market. So can you take us through the journey of developing a new tech? You got some of the initial finding, okay, exciting. And then what is the very first step? I think the first thing to understand is traditional scientific training doesn't automatically translate to commercialization training. They're two very different worlds. And they're two different languages. There's just different motivations. The whole thing is a transition. Mm. And lining up the goals and trying to get everybody to get something from one end to the other is, is a big journey and it doesn't take just one person. It, it takes a lot of different skills and a lot of different people along the way. I would say that when you start with the ideation stage or the early stage, it's really important to zoom out and understand the bigger picture and where it fits in, where your technology might fit into a clinical setting in particular in my case. Does it fit? Does it make sense? Um, is this something that's feasible? Because that's the hard part of getting it into clinic. There's all that the work around accuracy and, you know, making sure that it does what it says it does, which is a core part of validating your science. But then after that, there's a whole lot of roadblocks around regulation, reimbursement, trying to understand how it gets into the healthcare system, market entry, who's going to do it, where do the results go, how is it all managed, are you going to do that as a company, is it going to be sold to someone else or licensed to someone else and working with them. So all of that is a big jump and the biggest thing that you can do is think earlier, distill your idea very early on to try and understand some of how it will look in the real world. 
and then work in smaller milestones. So you start with proof of concept and early stage validation, and then you're working towards understanding, well, where do I need to get next? In you know, if that's a clinical trial, what does that mean? Who do I need to help me? How do I start thinking about this? You really have to think about those things and educate yourself early if you're going to be someone that transitions from the bench to the boardroom. Mm. So did you have a stage gate plan with how to continue, when to pivot, when to change or when to give up? Absolutely. We definitely had to because funding came in smaller tranches. I had to reach certain milestones with the science in order to get another tranche of funding, which was absolutely fair and the way to go because you don't just put a whole bunch of money into something without major milestone and points of failure or success. Why was your killer experiment? You know, because we say fail early. What was the failing, quick, failing, cheap experiment or point for you? I did a lot of learning on the job. I would design those around specific experiments that would give us an inflection point or maybe not given us an inflection point depending on where we were at. So that first phase was always around proof of concept and that was the one. That was the one because don't forget where I started was almost a back of the napkin idea that happened quite quickly, you know, looking at some hair, my own hair and and showing that, oh, there's potential for this to be a biomarker. That wasn't a lot of data. The science not working is a simple fail or success point, right? You can never guarantee what's going to come out of something. Biology is biology. It's going to be the result. And we did have an almost fail point because when I did my PhD, I was looking at hair and whole blood and the results that came out demonstrated that there were changes there, but they weren't significant. And when we looked back and thought about it, we realized that perhaps dietary lipids, so, you know, if you eat a hamburger at lunchtime, they were actually interfering with the result. And we didn't know how to overcome that. But when I was doing my literature review, I found a group in the US who happened to be doing something very similar in America and were the only other people doing what we were doing. And they were using these exosomes that I referred to earlier. So our cells shedding off these other cells and they were capturing that. And what that gave you was information that was specifically tumor derived. And so it didn't include those dietary lipids. It was a lot cleaner. And we were able to establish that this would be the way going forward. And we actually worked with them and collaborated and licensed their technology from America. So you had to license in their technology? A part of it, yep. Part of it. So they didn't become part of your company, but they gave away that bit. They worked with us in a collaboration, but it was actually at that point in time, the university was advertising that pattern and saying, hey, does anyone want to help us on this and like take it over? So mm. it was a perfect situation at the time, actually. Yeah, yeah. So portfolio acquisition, that's great. That's right to hear. And I mean, collaboration is going to always be a fundamental part of research, but there is always this talk about, you know, freedom to operate. So going from a collaboration to freedom to operate can be challenging, but in this case, they were happy to license in. So that's fantastic. So that was your next stage. And then from that, did you have another fail point or then from that you had a clear path forwards and it worked? There are always fail points, I would say, because of individual variability. This science is really tricky. Exosomes are very tricky. Lipids are very tricky. The technology is very tricky. So we definitely hit um, areas of, oh, shaky ground, you know, like, is this going to go ahead? But we always found ways to 
overcome them in terms of trying to reiterate as true science is you look back at what what has been done what can we change and what can we do to start again and I suppose for us it was always about robustness the bigger challenge which I still think is the one that is commercially challenging is taking that experiment using what we call a mass spectrometer and that finicky process of pulling out these exosomes and translating that into a clinical setting. So you mean getting the right speed and throughput that it can actually be used in the real world? Absolutely. And will pathology take it on? The customer at the end of the day is not the woman who has the test. It's actually a pathology company. If you're not going to build a a cancer detecting company yourself, then you're going to be giving this to pathology and the healthcare system. And would they use it? Can they use it? Is it too state of the art for them? Did you have to collaborate with pathology? Like, did you have to set up more collaboration to get to that point? We talked to them a lot along the journey, but they really wanted, you know, and this is the thing that I see with a lot of startups even today. I encourage them to go and have these conversations early so that people are informed on what they're trying to achieve. They couldn't jump in and do that with you right away because there's a lot of ideas that come to big companies like that, even in the the public health system. So they really need to see you at a certain stage before you can sort of work with them on validation. We don't have enough of that in Australia, I, I would say, and diagnostics mm. in particular struggles because they do need to work more hand in hand with public pathology and private pathology to get things to where they need them to be. Mm. So that's something I think as a country, we could still be working towards doing more of that early validation and preclinical validation. And so talking about that, incubator, accelerator, tech transfer agencies, you've been heading Cicada Innovation, which is Australia leading deep tech incubator for about three years and then moved mm -hmm. on. But Cicada has brought many startups in deep tech, including successful diagnostics like SpeedX, which managed to get their diagnostic in the GP practice. So great success story there. So first thing, what falls under deep tech generally? And what's the difference between an incubator, perhaps an accelerator, or even the tech transfer agencies? What's the role of each of these in your perspective? So deep technology encompasses those technologies that take a long time to get to market, right? It's a longer journey. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. It requires usually a science and engineering solution or background very intensive capital and guarded by red tape. So a lot of regulation and compliance is required to get to market. So for that reason, it's, it's, it's a long haul, it's an uphill haul, and those kinds of companies need a lot of support. And it can be anything. It can be in agriculture, ag tech, food tech, you know, all of that. It can be in med, health, space. There are lots of areas that deep technology cuts across. The other part around incubators, accelerators, and tech transfer. So to me, tech transfer is what I see within academia, where we should be, you know, pulling out really good ideas from academia and transferring them across to industry or working with industry or collaborating between academia and industry to transfer that technology and bring it to life or commercial realization. Accelerators and incubators, I've always actually struggled to figure out the fundamental difference. Now, when I worked at Cicada, I understood that that was an incubator because we'd take in those small, early fledgling companies and support them with all the things they needed in an actual physical space. And that included mentorship, access to facilities, connections to people, training if required, all of those things, you know, like when you incubate something and nurture it, foster it and love it, 
and care for it so that it then flies away and does what it needs to do. And SpeedX is a good example of that. As for accelerators, what I've seen in the industry, it's that fast pace, get people in and then quite quickly with what they may need and train them up and upskill and give them a bit of growth. But it's not that long-term love, which is what an incubator does. It sits with you for the lifetime probably that you need until you're ready to stand on your own two feet, if that makes sense. All right. So an incubator can stand with you for many years? Yes, yes, absolutely. We've had residents of Cicada that had been there for for many years, but and some that didn't make it all the way. But at the end of the day, that Cicada was there for that journey. Mm. Did you have access to an incubator or the tech transfer when you transitioned for BCL diagnostics? Well, so it's actually a little bit funny. We jumped around a bit with some different places. So I started sort of in within a breast clinic, which is where the initial investors had some space for me. So I started there and then I moved on to an office within a VC's office. Not that they were funding us. It just was like I only needed a little bit of foot space. So they gave me that. And then we moved into Cicada for a little while. So I was actually a resident of Cicada before I started working there. Right. Okay. So how long did you stay with Cicada then? Uh, Oh, gosh. Like a, a big part of the journey. No, it was halfway through, actually. I did a lot of that other stuff beforehand because if we were formed in 2010, it was well after, you know, it was probably 2016 or 17 that I joined Cicada as an incubatee. And was that a major enabler? It was. I did. I mean, don't forget, we started this very early and I'd already started putting on my commercial hat from 2010 when this became a company. So it was me trying to learn things along the way. One of the things that I did at Cicada Innovations was the New South Wales Health Commercialization Training Program. That's how I found Cicada, actually, because I applied for the course and I did the course and I learned a whole lot of commercialization skills, thanks to New South Wales Health and Cicada at the time, on how to you know, build a business. Even though I'd been in one for half the time, it was still a whole lot of new skills that helped me really understand the rest of the pathway to market and also mm. connect me to the community. And, and that was the biggest game changer for me. So you still had to learn all the business space because when you said there yeah, was two investors, founding investors and then two scientists, I automatically assumed that the business bit was kind of handled by the investors, but that wasn't the case. It is, they were, but it's my personal skills, right? My personal journey. I wasn't just a scientist anymore. I couldn't just sit in the room and be the scientist because I needed to understand what they were talking about. And they sure explained things to me and I could learn on the job, but there's only so much you can do learning on the job before you need to understand some fuller context. And, you know, a lot of the things that I learned about capital raising and and all of the pitching and things like that did come through that commercialization program because that was something that science communication is something you learn along the way, but that really accelerated my science communication. Mm, really good. So you recommend that anyone that is looking for founding a startup in deep tech gets proper training? Yeah, in a way. like I think what I'm trying to say is that there is a lot more available now than there was back when I started, right? there There wasn't any of these training programs in 2010 that existed. Now, if you look around and you search, every state, every country seems to have some sort of accelerator program, workshops. You can learn about QMS regulation. You can learn about pitching. You can learn about the you know landscape of capital raising and what do investors want. All this information is readily available. 
And sometimes it's not that expensive. It's not going to cost you a whole degree. It just could be a short course that's, you know, affordable or in the case of the New South Wales Health Program, it was free. Mm, so no need to go for an MBA, rather focus yeah. on your, you know, scientific research, yeah. but also upskill yourself with short courses that are targeted to that. Yeah, it absolutely depends on the company, your personal goals. Some people do do MBAs. Some people feel like, you know, they want to work for their company and they know the skills that they need and understand the gaps. And sometimes they have people in the company that have those skills, but they want the skills themselves. And I think that's where it comes from. Did you find it was daunting to be a scientist surrounded by business people who needed to have business answers? Absolutely. I was really young as well. Let's not forget. Mm. Starting at 22 meant that I felt completely out of my depth, but I was really, really motivated by the science and I loved it. And that's all I wanted to do was drive this to somewhere. Um, and I like to learn. So that's, you know, keep an open mind. But I've always had an identity crisis, right? I think in, you know, when I had to jump ship and go into the startup thing at such a young age, I was worried I wouldn't be a real scientist anymore because I wasn't doing fundamental, you know, science and collecting papers and publishing and doing all those things. So I had that identity crisis. And then as I got into the business world and had more time in front of certain people and different audiences, there was this whole, you know, oh yeah, pigeonholed as a scientist. Like that was almost, that's where you belong. That's all you can do. And I sure as hell can do more than that. And I've been able to do more than that. And That's because I believe in multi-skilling and upskilling myself. I'm not saying I have every skill under the sun, but if I want to progress in any role, and I learned this from the, you know, from doing my PhD and the mentor that said, you know, a PhD will open doors for you. You could get into it. You could be a chief scientist. And those are the sorts of things I learned along the way. Okay, this is, this is important. Multi-skilling yourself and upskilling yourself is important. Mm. And were you in a supportive environment where many people supporting you and other detracting you? How did you go about this journey that is a bit unconventional for a 22-year-old? Yeah, there are different levels of support, I would say. I do feel like I've had to fight a lot harder for things along the way because there's the age thing, you know, you, you being younger, you do have to push a little harder. Um And prove yourself a little more if you're a scientist going into industry. There are lots of ways and reasons why there are setbacks and challenges. I've had a really great few people in my life that have been amazing mentors and supporters and have helped me by pushing me to do things that I probably wouldn't want to or have considered. And that's where I think that resilience comes from because they've just been like, go for it, have a go. And, I'm like, oh, and you fail and you learn and you keep going. And And I think I've had some good supporters and yeah, detractors, yeah, plenty of pigeonholing, as I said earlier, putting me into a box of scientists or, you know, limitations based on how much is, how much has been done on paper versus how much I've done in reality or been able to contribute to a company. I think that's, mm -hmm. that's been some of the things that detract. Yeah, you said two things that I resonate with. What, what the first thing is this dichotomy between researchers and industry and why there is, they have a lot of collaboration and they kind of work hand in hand. There is some mistrust between one and the others. And I think it's a major hurdle for better collaboration. So I, I would love for industry and academia to engage more from a trust mm -hmm. level and say, You guys are doing one thing, we're doing another, but we're all going toward the same things and we need each other. 
but with a more trustful relationship rather than, oh, those guys are just business minded. They don't care about outcomes and we are so pure. But then the industry thinking, oh, those guys are thinking fundamental and they've got no clue what they're doing, which, you know, I'm, I'm caricaturing a little bit, but this is a little bit the mindset sometimes that we, we go into. And, and the second bit is the pigeonholing and the acknowledgement of what you actually do versus what is actually seen on paper. And, and the Franklin women would tell you that they've done a, a Wikipedia where they added loads of reference for women because if it's not reference, then it doesn't exist these days. Whatever is not on paper is not real. And so it affects your entire career and your, your ability to brand yourself towards what you can actually really achieve. So. It, it's a hard bit, I think, for everyone out there. And so I'm glad that you could overcome that. Do you have an advice to overcome that pigeonholing and making clear of what you can do to other opportunities to open? Well, first of all, I have to say Melina and her team did do a Wikipedia on me. And that has been <laughs> very, I was very privileged to be one of those people chosen. So go, frankly, women and all the work that they're doing. I love them. My advice is, I, I suppose it's, just to keep pushing against that, you know, I, I would just be smart about, like I said, I know I keep harping on about it, but it's my biggest thing is like, I would just keep upskilling myself and learning and understanding my environment so that I could comfortably and confidently have conversations about things that were not just science, right? Within mm. the business. And that was my own thing that I had to take on. I had to be proactive. The second thing is, I really, when I was younger, I really underestimated the value and the purpose of networking. It just wasn't something that I, you know, knew to do naturally, not something I thoroughly went out and sought. So networking outside of academic circles and, you know, going into the industry side and also just seeing what was out there and networking through places like Cicada and, and all those groups became a really big part of overcoming those hurdles because I started to learn from others in the in the industry and understand that some people were on the same, you know, hell-beaten path that startup can be or, you know, people that were out there that were like, actually, I could probably give you half an hour of my time and talk about that and we could can discuss this and soundboard and brainstorm. So there are all these things that come with expanding and putting yourself out there a little bit that then come to reap benefits and help you overcome some of those things. You don't always have to go in guns blazing and just start being assertive to every challenge, which you can do, but you can also learn and, and grow and, and build yourself to that place that you want to be. Mm. Was there a threshold for you? I mean, we can upskill and we can pick up all the skill in the world, but at some point it has to come from a place of confidence and, and people have to be receptive in acknowledging your whole skill sets. Were there a pivotal moment where you started being taken more seriously past the age of 22 being a scientist in business? I think for me it was when I got my PhD and there were a number of reasons why. There was an inner confidence that came out in me knowing that I had achieved that and was able to sort of say to myself, I set my mind to this, I said I would do it and I'd do it. But I think when you're becoming a chief scientist of a company, there's a, you know, a level of credibility that comes with having done that mm. and, and bringing that to the table. I think mm. the other part is when I, I guess when I started learning to communicate my science more and so having those extra set of commercialization skills and being able to pitch, I think, and communicate 
the science in a business savvy way was a big leap in, mm. in my ability to have people listen to what I was saying, absorb it and actually understand it and take it away and think about it and want to join the journey. So the PhD really was kind of the credibility that you needed. And then the commercialization course that helped you having the right vocabulary to communicate with business people so that they will feel like you are in the same world. Yes, absolutely. So pitching is one of the main things that you've got to do for getting capital, right? So, and you have done a lecture at the University of Sydney on pitching your ideas for the medtech se sector. So with that wealth of experience there, how does one goes about to actually do a pitch for deep tech? And, and where do you find people to pitch to? Well, I guess when it comes down to formulating a pitch, there are lots of standards out there. People say, you know, oh, this is the structure. This is what it should be. I think at the end of the day, people look for technology and team. And by that, I mean, when they say the technology, it's the, the problem, the why. Why are you doing this? Why does it matter? Why is it going to change anything? And you really have to nail why you're doing something. <laughs> You mm. can't just be another thing that sits next to something else. There should be a shift in an impact that's measurable probably. And then the team is important because it's it's not just about your skill set, even though you may have come up with the idea. It's understanding who have you got to drive this and are they the right people to do that. And that is what you're trying to pitch. And I always got told, and I stand by it now and I tell other people, you should be able to say what you're doing without compromising your intellectual property and you should be able to do it in a you know a 30 second to a minute elevator pitch so that mm. people walk away ah oh, because you never know who you're standing next to in a room you never know when you're networking who might know who and communicating your idea at its very core is one of the simplest things that you can do early on and how long of a process is that do you think it takes you know you might do the first one and you might be mediocre and then you refine it do you, do you reckon it takes months to get the right pitch so i think it's kissing a lot of frogs is what it is what it is so you need to go through some of those really brutal feedback moments with people that you've pitched to and finding those people to pitch to is it depends on your industry right in med tech and biotech there are certain investors that exist again today's day and age there are people that you know through networks but there are also lots that exist if you look at australian vcs or australian investment funds that exist you can find that information and you need to do as much of those as well as just talking to people who don't have money right you've got to be just talking to people like perhaps it's consumers perhaps it's healthcare key opinion leaders in the case of my stuff you want that critical feedback and it will take a little while to get that perfect but the issue isn't trying to get it perfect what you're wanting to do is does my idea resonate is that person grasping what I'm trying to say do they understand the value of what I'm trying to achieve and are they you know willing to come on this journey with me because the stakeholders are not just capital you know, people with capital. There are so many other stakeholders that could stop you from getting to market, including the healthcare system, including maybe even government. So being able to communicate that idea across the breadth of people that are involved in your value chain is actually the core piece. And every single one of those pitches is going to be different. So mm. practice makes perfect is the bottom line. So I take from that, if I wanted to do a pitch, I would do a first version and then show up in places where there are those different stakeholders, perhaps, you know, in different events and then try them on and then iterate, 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 iterate. 
absolutely. And you might be doing that in a conversation that you're having with someone at an event. Oh, I don't quite get that. Okay, well, so what I'm actually trying to do is this. Oh, right. Okay. Mm. And then you say to yourself, okay, well, that works with that person. So Yes, it's not sitting at a computer and trying to get it right, but rather living the right pitch. <laughs> absolutely. You live and breathe your business and your technology when mm-hmm. that is your that is your bread and butter. That's great. And so talking about capital, so I talk to a lot of people who have launched their company, but it's a service. And so there's not that much involved to start that. And so they've been able to be sustainable from day one, which is already a great achievement. But for deep tech, we're talking about a completely different level. So you've said in the new definition from deep tech that something that says substantial capital. What are we looking at in the first year? And I know it depends on when you start, but like, let's go with your story of having a very early stage idea that needs validation. What in the first year, the range of capital that we have to think about? Yeah, I see this a lot with, when I was a Cicada, I did a lot of mentoring and talking to companies that would, well, newly formed baby companies that would just be like, where do I start? And what I always said to them was, if they were really early stage and hadn't even done their early proof of concept experiments, I would say devise that experiment. What is that inflection point validating big experiment that you could do or test that you could do to demonstrate that this works and how much would that cost you? Mm -hmm. And in the early stages, it sometimes doesn't have to be a lot, especially if you're just putting the money towards the idea and not really anything else in the business. A lot of the time, these people are just a couple of team members that don't pay themselves or a very small stipend for themselves. So it might be under 200K. It's what we call seed funding. Mm, 200K. You know, something like that, something small. I've had others that are like, oh, I just need, you know, 50,000 to just do this tiny thing and just demonstrate that this tiny thing works. But it will be somewhere in that that bracket, right, where the key is what can you use that funds for efficiently to demonstrate something that will give you an, an upturn that'll allow you to raise that big tranche of capital next or bigger tranche of capital next. Mm. And so seed funding, we're not talking about government grant at that point. Look, I know some that have done really small grants like the Minimal Viable Product Grant, you mm. know, which is offered, I believe that's in New South Wales. There are some people that leverage those grants, but some people go to seed investors or angel investors as well and, At the and, beginning. and get that money. Mm. Mm. And so if they were to go and be lucky enough to be selected in Cicada Innovation Portfolio, for example, that might be lower because they have access to facilities. Yes, that could be the case. And each of those incubators and accelerators have different funding models and the way that their funding has you know, fund you or bring you on has to be also aligned with your own values. But where there are facilities, I always think that is a draw card because where there are facilities, there are community and where there is community, there's lots of learning. Mm, very good advice, right? So 200K to start with more or less at that point. And so you said it can be lots of teams that don't pay themselves. So how does one that has this idea and want to make a dent in this world, but perhaps have dependent or, you know, want to eat properly or have proper life. How, how does one start with that? Because I, I would, I would assume this is one of the a limiting factor. You know, if you have a PhD and you have your PhD stipend, okay, that takes you for those three, four years. But then if you don't have that, how do you sustain yourself during those early stage? It's a deeply personal choice and a personal journey. And I know quite a few founders that have kept a side hustle and had a main job 
and worked extra hard to do something. I was fortunate that we had funders that were willing to fund and put, you know, a salary aside for me to be able to work. And that's been a very wonderful thing that allowed me to do those early years and just focus on the science. But I've met lots of people that are starting from scratch that just can't afford to take that risk. And I think that is absolutely valid and fair. There's no one way to do it. You've got to do what's best for you. Mm -hmm. And if you need security of raising that capital, then it's going to be a bit of a juggle while you do some sort of other job. And don't commit the 100% to that one thing, but you can commit a substantial amount to get it, you know, perhaps through that seed funding piece. And once you've done that, then you get ready to jump ship and you know when that point will come because it's a personal, comfortable place that you have to be in order to do that. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's also a bit yeah. hard and unfair to me because it means like if unless you've got funding for the beginning, it's you're kind of limited in what you can achieve really. It It's unfair in that sense, yes, but I think good, well thought out and planned ideas that have, you know, robustness around them can get funding and even in Australia where we are quite risk averse mm. it does happen and you know I've got a, a colleague that I knew and a friend of mine called that started up Vow which is the lab grown meat company and, oh yeah you know he started off having a job and then doing that on the side and when it was ready and when he was ready to jump he jumped and I think that's sort of the way that some people do it because mm. it's not it's it it's not on it's it is unfair I get what you're saying but it's not unfair because you also have to earn that and be ready for that and take it on and it's a risk appetite thing right mm. and if you don't have that risk appetite and you don't have that ability to organize yourself to figure it out then that's on you because <laughs> it's mm. a tough one you really have to back yourself mm. the technology has to be well thought out and you have to really know your why why are you doing this why does this solve a problem it has to be a real problem that you're solving. That's where all of this, you know, big picture stuff and also zooming into what, what am I trying to do here, two ends matter. Mm, yeah, yeah. And so I think that comes back again with the incubator because, like, if you've got access to facility, at least you can do that on the side. Otherwise, yeah. what do you do? You know, I can't work at a finance company and then do experiment of biology. It's just where am I going to do that? So, Well, that's that's very true. That's hard to find facilities for those sorts of things but yeah that's actually the toughest part and we mm. see a lot of that and that's what I'm trying to unravel because like seriously someone would be puzzling how am I supposed to do that if tomorrow I, I've got an idea I don't even know where am I going to do that so an incubator might be the place but otherwise I don't know how I would do that you'd collaborate with someone I guess at a university or you would depending on the level of laboratory need they have you can sort of find the odd place to do some quick and dirty work but it's not easy no it's not easy mm, it's very not hard. easy perhaps there is a course to have on uh, places where you can do your early validation <laughs> to be honest when I was at Sakata that same thing because people would come in and say oh I'd love to just do a few experiments on the side it's, like, it's really hard to govern that stuff laboratories need good lab practice and governance and having those places as a free space is very hard to to mm. build and then Access to capital, especially in Australia, I hear that capital is the number one hurdle for biotech, startup, deep tech to actually get funding. What's your take on it? Is, is it difficult to get funding? 
in Australia, is that the biggest hurdle or what is the biggest hurdle you think in this country for deep tech to progress? I think capital is going to be a problem for any businesses for as long as they're sort of alive, right? If you're, if you're not generating revenue, you need to be raising capital. If you're not raising capital, then what are you going to do? So I think that's a big part. I think it is well known and well established that as a country, we are a little bit more risk averse than other countries. And that makes putting capital into big ideas like deep tech, which take a long time to give a return on investment as very risky, is harder for some people. But there are some funds that exist to try and do that. I think there are other roadblocks in my sector anyway, in Australia, for healthcare. You know, for example, we are broken up by states when it comes to procurement. There are different reasons why when you get to the market entry stage in deep technology for, say, health and medicine, it, there are still roadblocks that exist regardless of capital, for example, mm. right? Reimbursing something is a very difficult and different place to be for some parts of, you know, devices versus diagnostics, for example, something like that. So there are challenges that will exist at the back end and the front end, but the underlying one will always be capital. And we're seeing some blue sky research being invested into, which is wonderful to see, but we still have some work to do on that. And the only way we can do that is to de-risk ideas so people feel more comfortable investing in them. And mm-hmm. the only way to de-risk them is to support them to get mm-hmm. through some of those hurdles and help them get past that validation piece and point. And that comes down to all of the people and all of the stakeholders in the ecosystem, including government, to help build that from underneath. Mm-hmm. So people are starting to fund the company. Do you need an exit strategy? Did you have one? What was yours? I guess an exit strategy is something to think about. Some startups I've met have thought this is just going to happen and it's just going to be magical and we'll exit at this end and the pharma company will want it and that's what's going to happen. It's not the way it works. And so my view on this was to keep people engaged early, keep key opinion leaders engaged early, keep pathology engaged early, talk to them, talk to them, talk to them, tell them what you're building, tell them why you're building it, tell them where they may fit into the process. And then you think about exit strategy because when you, they'll tell you when they want to see you again and when they're ready to take you on. Mm. And that will give you where is the exit point or strategy. And, you know, it d- comes down to the team and the people and what your vision of the company is. Did BCAR Diagnostics initially want to be a whole diagnostics facility, setting up instrument? No, not really. I think we had a view that we would build this service and, and license it out or sell it as a kit and put it out and different models. And we looked at all the models mm. because any, any of them could be feasible. But if it was as good as we wanted it to be and could be extrapolated across the different cancers as we wanted it to be, then maybe pathology would have been a suitable exit strategy or partner, you know? So it's always good to do that thinking, but not hinge upon it and say, well, this is exactly where I'm going to head. It's good to be fluid and flexible because you never know where you might end up. Mm. And so where is the technology now? So it's still going through clinical validation. The company went public last year or the year before. And yeah, it's probably going to hopefully have legs not too far off now. Great. Well, we'll hope to see that in the future. So going on co-founding, and, and I've heard how you were four with different skill sets and how that's been helpful. 
But co-founding companies is always a matter of affinity as much as skill complementation. How do you go about the rationale of like teaming up with people and what's important to consider for people who consider having co-founders? I think there are some important things that I learned being young and also just having, you know, my own experiences as well as knowing lots of other people's experiences. And that is understanding that when you pick these people, you'll be working with them for a long time. So the trust and commitment needs to be there because there are going to be lots of things that shake that up along the way. So really the common goal is one thing, but then personalities and people and trust. And then the second thing is ensuring you have equity making sure you've got equity is a big piece if you're even if you're contributing no funds but you're contributing intellectual property that is a big thing to make sure you carve out because you're still contributing something Mm. and as scientists I think that's an important thing to understand you may not necessarily have to be the person that takes something all the way to commercialization in fact you may want to continue to kick on and do more science in the lab and and let somebody else take that on and co-found with you and be the business person. If that's the case, you still are entitled to certain amounts of equity and contribution and a seat at the table. If, you know, maybe there's a role for you as part of an advisory group or the board or something like that. But I think forming that team in the early stages, you really all need to understand who each other are and, and know that you're in this for the long haul and working together. Mm, and so in a, such a long journey, I imagine that you have to realign your vision many times in the process. Absolutely. Mm, yeah, which can or cannot be aligned at some point, I suppose. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for sharing all this. Do you have anything else that you want to advise to want to be deep tech founder? I think it's just about, you know, understanding your resilience and where, where that lies for you, like as in where the the wall is. It's okay to sometimes just pause and say, I don't have all the skills I need to take this forward. I need more people around me to build this and make it push forward even more. But resilience is the key in deep tech. It's a long journey, as I've just said, and your own personal ability to keep going is is going to be the thing that motivates you. So make sure you really believe and love what you're doing. Awesome. Thank you, Darmika. Thank you so much for this incredible recount of your founding days. Heaps of learning there. And as you've told us at the beginning, you're now working with MTP Connect to address the key roadblock for diagnostic capability and resilience. And we've talked a little bit about many of these challenges, including access to facilities, state-level legislation, fragmentation, supply chain resilience, scalability, and so on. And so if I understand it well, MTP Connect is aiming to have an action plan to address all these challenges at a government level rather than at an individual player level. And I mean, by consulting with the wider industry and developing a proposed plan of action for the Australian government. Is that right? Absolutely. It starts from the top down, right? And it's everybody's got a bit of a role to play in all of this. And there are so many different stages, as we've discussed, to get to commercialization and then to get into market and then beyond. And what is our role as a country and where do we fit with the rest of the globe and what can we do more of and what should we do less of? Mm. All right. Well, fantastic. I'm looking forward to see the output of that when it comes out. And then reflecting on your journey, what do you think is some of the privilege that enabled your path and perhaps some of the systemic barrier that you had to overcome that other may not have? I know what my privileges have been. My privileges have easily been education and having 
you know, a supportive environment within where I've been able to flourish and do what I love. So I know that much. And it's always going to be that identity crisis piece. Or, you know, when I started this journey, the trifecta for me was female, young, brown. That was always going to be a challenge. Well, that was Damika Mystery, the co-founder of Bical Diagnostics, a diagnostic company looking to detect early aggressive breast cancer. There's so much to learn from Damika's experience, and it really is a growth journey. And growth is needed to beat the odds. Women in science are already underrepresented, let alone women founders in deep tech. And a scientist amongst business people and a young woman of color. I am truly admirative of the growth mindset and the perseverance that Damika demonstrates. And I think it's such a great inspiration for all of us and especially for young women in science out there. There is a way, there truly is. Damika repeated many times, it is not only about learning on the job, but also upskilling yourself at several points in your journey. And nowadays, there's so much education available from commercialization program, venture capital, equity short course, pitching, regulation. There's a short course for everything and a podcast for everything. However, no course is going to go as far as finding your own crowd and the community of people who have been on your path before so you can work your way asking around. And that's part of why incubators and accelerators are so useful. If you want to hear more about incubators and accelerators, hold your breath and preparing season two of Multiple Hats with a focus on these. But meanwhile, these provide a community of mentors, investors, and in some cases, even the facilities you may need to do early validation, which, as Damika mentioned, can cost you anywhere between 50 to 200k in deep tech, where you need either a grant or some seed fundings or angel investors. So if you're working on some exciting science and you would like to take a first step, ask yourself, what problem do I solve and can I explain that in under one minute? And most importantly, what is the critical experiment which can demonstrate the potential of your technology and make your project further fundable? Don't back out, there is a way. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like the show, share it. Tune in for monthly episodes. You can follow multiple hats, visit my website. That's angelicgreco.com.au or follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Just search for Angelic Greco. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to tell me about your story, leave me a message.